All right, Matthew chapter 2. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And, uh, you know, this last week I, I mentioned that I was kind of struggling a little bit with uh, Christmas series this year, getting, getting that off the ground. But I got in the Christmas mood this week as I was studying and reading the Bible, really just reading devotionally. I do try, I think I may have mentioned this last week, but I do try every year uh, when it gets to be about November-ish, I, I try to read several times through the Christmas narratives, through the Christmas passages in Matthew and Luke. And I'm always just asking uh, God, wanting God to reveal something new to me. And this year I'd been reading through them and reading through them and nothing was really grabbing my attention. But this week, really, as I was reading early in the week, something caught my attention that that I just couldn't get away from. And I want to share it with you this week, what caught my attention. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, before we get to Matthew chapter 2, I want to give you a little bit of what's going on here. Terry just read a passage of scripture for us uh, from the prophet Isaiah that mentioned uh, that that the king who was coming, this son who would be born for us, we know who that is. We know it's Jesus. It says, or Isaiah said, that he would take his place on the throne of David. That's really, really important. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and just look at the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he says these words, the son of David. And then we have this genealogy, which nobody ever wants to read. But the reason it's there is to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, a descendant in an earthly sense, a descendant of King David. He comes from the same tribe. You can trace, if you read the genealogy, you can trace the lineage from Joseph, his earthly father, all the way back to David. And they're establishing that Jesus comes from that line of David. And this is really important because all of Israel's history uh, from, the, from, from David onward, all of their history was about waiting for this king who would come. They were looking for this king who would come to take David's throne. They were looking for this Messiah. All of their national identity and their national hope was wrapped up in the idea that there will be a king who's going to come and sit on the throne of David, and he's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to renew the kingdom. In fact, you can hear this in the question of the disciples when they stand with Jesus after he's been resurrected in Acts chapter 1, and they ask him a question. Anybody remember the question they ask him? Will you at this time restore the kingdom? They recognize who he is and what he's there for. And of course, Jesus says uh, something interesting, which I've always thought was so interesting, given our preoccupation in American Christianity with the end times. I thought it was interesting that they were asking about the kingdom and when the kingdom would be complete. And Jesus' answer to them was, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but you shall become my witnesses. So he says, don't worry about all the... The, the technical things about when this is going to come to an end. Just go do the things I've called you to do. And so we have Jesus established as the descendant of David here. And then we have, of course, in the remainder of chapter 1, the angel visiting Joseph because Joseph had a great dilemma. You can see he was betrothed. He was engaged to Mary. Of course, Mary was soon to be found pregnant. And there was a problem there because they weren't married 
Joseph and Mary weren't supposed to be having any type of, of sexual relationship, and she certainly wasn't with any other man. And so the angel came and announced it. Joseph, she's going to be pregnant, but this child will be different. This child will be special. This is going to be uh, uh, the one in verse 23 that fulfills the prophecy. Verse, chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is going to be the Son of God. And so now, that's how the gospel opens. Now we get to chapter 2 and look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes, of the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. I stop right there. Now I just want to show you what caught my attention. I, I had never noticed this before. That's one of the things I love about the Bible, by the way. It can just keep speaking to you for years and for decades, just showing you new things, God showing you new things. And here's what caught my attention. Just hang on with me because I'm not going to get to any points of application until like the last three minutes of the sermon. So let me develop this and just show you what caught my attention. And here it is. We have these wise men who came from the east to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah. And when they came, they asked a simple question. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now, as I was reading that, it occurred to me, for the first time, maybe you've had this thought many times, but for me, I started to think about these wise men from the East, who they were, where they came from, and how in the world did they know to look for the king of the Jews? That was the first thing that stuck out to me. But then the second thing, they asked this question, and immediately it says, Herod heard this, and he was troubled. Now, you know why he was troubled? Because he was the king of the Jews. He was not a Jew, but he had been appointed by the Romans to rule over the Jews in Jerusalem. And he was actually by title king of the Jews in Jerusalem. And so imagine that you're king of the Jews and these people come, this caravan of people come, and they pose the question, where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? You might be troubled too. And so Herod was troubled because he knows that, that this, is, this is going to create a problem for him and his ability to rule. And so when he hears that this child has been born, he calls together the only people he can think of that can point him to where this child might be. And it says that he gathered up the chief priests and the scribes of the people so that he could ask them where this child came from. Now, here's the sort of the second thing. What really stuck out to me was this juxtaposition of, the, the, the strangers from the east looking for the king. Then Herod asks 
the religious elite where the king was. Why would he ask them? Y'all help me out. Why would he, if he wanted to know where the king of the Jews was going to be born, why would he call the, the, the priest and the scribes together? Somebody just said it. They were supposed to know. Like if anybody was going to know where this king was supposed to be born, these are the people who are going to know. These are the, the experts in all things related to the Messiah. Remember, their entire identity as Jews is tied to the coming of the Messiah. So the chief priests and the scribes, particularly the scribes, who were the experts in the interpretation of the Old Testament and the prophecies. If anyone in Israel was going to know where the Messiah would be born, it was them. And they have an answer. You see it in verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. They, I mean, they didn't even have to hesitate. They knew the answer. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now stop right there. I don't, you know, sometimes I, I, I'm concerned that what captured me won't capture you. But this is what really got me. The chief priests and scribes were experts on the Messiah. They knew all the prophecies about him. They knew where he was supposed to be born. They, they knew what signs to look for. But these experts in religion were the ones who rejected Jesus. I think it's striking. Consider this for a second. I think it's striking that these experts were asked about this king, this Messiah, the Christ. They gave an answer and then they didn't go looking themselves. It was just like they weren't concerned at all. Sure, he's supposed to be born over there in Bethlehem. They knew all about their religion. These were the experts in religion, and they were the ones who rejected the Messiah, the ones who eventually would stand before Pilate and, and shout, crucify him. These experts were the, the ones who would reject him. And there's a frightening application here. This isn't the main application of the sermon, but there's a frightening application here. And the application is that it's possible to be an expert in Jesus and still reject him. I mean, just think of that. It's possible to have religion coming out of your ears and still not know Jesus. That's troubling because Jesus must be known. He must be known. In order for there to be salvation, there's salvation in no other name except Jesus. Jesus himself said it in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So these experts, they, they were experts, but they didn't know him. They didn't know Jesus. So there's this king in Jerusalem who wants to kill the baby. There are these experts in religion in Jerusalem who really don't care about this baby. But then there are these strangers, these wise men, these mysterious figures. How many of you know the, <clears throat> the, the, the song, We Three Kings? You know that song? We three kings. Someone sing it with me. Oh, boy, that's all we really know. 
we have all this, um, this imagery about these wise men. That song probably informs a lot of our imagery about our wise men, these mysterious figures. Who are these wise men? And Matthew doesn't tell us much about them, does he? He told us two things, really, two notable things. One, they came from the east. And two, they saw something in the sky that brought them from the east. That's all we really know. You know what we don't know or what we're not told in the Scriptures? We're not told that there were three of them. Fact is, that's so unlikely that it's almost absurdly unlikely. Because these men would have certainly traveled with a large caravan. They would have probably, some historians probably even say that they would have had a small army with them which also helps to explain why when they came into Jerusalem that it says Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled because these people from Babylon have shown up in Jerusalem with a caravan and, and probably an army and weapons and riding not on camels with spices and gold hanging off the camels, but coming on horses, on horseback. So we have these men who come and Matthew just tells us they're from the east. They saw some sort of sign, but who were these men? So let's dig a little deeper into that. Y'all with me so far? Let's dig a little deeper into that. And the first place to dig a little deeper is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, where Matthew says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This is the first place we're going to dig a little deeper because for some reason, I don't know why, most English translations of the Bible just whiff on this completely. Except, one of the notable exceptions is the NIV. Does anybody have an NIV in here? Does yours say something different there, Chuck? It should say that Magi from the East Game. And the reason it says that, Chuck or anybody else who has NIV in here, the reason it says magi and not wise men is because the word is magi. And it's an untranslatable word because it's just a name of a certain type of people. We translate it wise men because of what they came to be known for, but the word is magi, and that really helps us to begin to kind of dig a little deeper and understand what's going on here because we do know something about the magi in the ancient world. In fact, we know quite a bit about the Magi from the ancient world. We know that the Magi were a group of priests who came from the, uh, from the kingdom of the Medes. So they were Median priests who served particularly around the area of Babylon and Persia and that region. And they did all sorts of different things. And I hope after you hear all this that it'll make a little bit more sense as you read Matthew 2, what's going on here. But one of the things that they were really well known for is that they were skilled astronomers. That was sort of their trade. Their, their, their trade was to look up and study the stars. And you know what astronomy is? It's just the scientific study of the stars and the, the celestial bodies. And it plots the stars and tracks the stars. And they're constantly watching the stars. So they were skilled astronomers. And they plotted and kept detailed records of the stars. But this also led to astrology. They were also astrologers. So they were astronomers and astrologers. You know the difference between the two? Astronomy is what you do when you go to the planetarium and look and you see the stars and you study the scientific study of the stars. Astrology is what happens when you go get a newspaper and read your horoscope. 
So don't do that, by the way. But, but that's, what it, that's what it is. Astrology is, is the belief that the positioning of the stars and the movement of the stars leads to influencing events here on the earth. So they were astronomers, and that eventually led them to astrology. And they were also uh, really well-known in the ancient world for their, uh, their intellect. They were highly educated. They were philosophers. They were educated in medicine. They were educated in natural science, all of these things. But there was also a, a bit of a darker side to the Magi because they also dabbled in all sorts of sorcery. There were all sorts of things that they were involved in, particularly the interpretation of dreams. They were called on to interpret dreams and make predictions for people based on these interpretations. In fact, uh, this began to overshadow as, as the centuries went on what they were originally known for as being wise scientists who studied the stars and gave good advice to kings. And eventually they just became known as little more than fortune tellers and magicians. In fact, our English word magic is an adaptation of the word magi. They were magicians. So this group of pagan priests that come from the Midian Empire that served in the courts of kings all throughout Babylon and all throughout Persia and in those years leading up to the coming of Christ, they achieved great power. In fact, there was a time period leading up to Christ in Persia and in Babylon when no king would be allowed to ascend to the throne unless they first were masters of the teaching of the Magi. And then second, the Magi had to come and offer a coronation for the king themselves. No king could be placed on the throne without the Magi coming first, which is also a very interesting thing. So they were the kingmakers of the ancient world. But the answer still remains. Why would these pagan priests show up in Jerusalem, not just to crown a king, but to worship the king. And the answer is fascinating. So follow along with me here. And you can turn, if you want, to the book of Daniel, the, the, the Christmas story from the book of Daniel. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon from the book of Daniel. Do any of you remember that? I preached a sermon uh, when we were kind of in a tumultuous time nationally, and I preached from the book of Daniel, and I reminded us all as we looked at the book of Daniel that we see that God, the message of the book of Daniel ultimately is that God is in control of kingdoms and nations and kings and princes, and that God raises up and that God pulls down. You remember that now? Does that make more familiarity? Okay, so we have... Uh, uh, the, the book of Daniel, and we know a lot about Daniel just anecdotally about the story of Daniel, Daniel and the lion's den. We know all these stories about Daniel, but Daniel rose to prominence because he did something that the Magi were meant to do. Remember one of the things I said that the Magi were experts in or supposed experts in was the interpretation of dreams. And it's interesting, in Daniel chapter 2, if you're there, in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 1 and 2, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans 
be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. Now this is again where it's really interesting. If you look back at verse 2, it says the king commanded that the magicians, stop right there, what word do you think that might be? Magi. And it's said by many scholars that what comes next are just synonyms for magi. So it's not that there were all these different groups, the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, but that they were the magi. The magi were the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and they were summoned into the court of Nebuchadnezzar to interpret this dream. But there was a big problem. If you remember, the problem was that they were called to interpret the dream, but they couldn't. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, being a wise king, had an idea that he would challenge them and say, I'm not just going to ask you to tell me what my dream meant. I'm going to ask you to tell me my dream. And then after you tell me my dream, then I'll allow you to interpret it for me. But if you can't tell me what I dreamed, then I know that this whole thing is a farce and I'm going to kill all of you. And in spite of that threat, they still couldn't do it, which tells us what? They were fakes. They may have thought they were interpreting dreams. They may have even believed that they were interpreting dreams. But when it came, uh, push came to shove, they realized that they really couldn't interpret the dreams. And so Daniel's called upon and Daniel says, I can interpret the dream. And Daniel interprets the dream, of course, for Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens next to Daniel in chapter 2, verse 48 is key here. Then the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Later on, we're told specifically in the book of Daniel, in chapter 5, that he was the chief of the Magi in Babylon. Now, think about this for a moment. Think about the question we're trying to answer. How did a group of pagan priests from Babylon know to come looking for a king in Jerusalem to worship? Well, the answer is 600 years prior to them showing up when Daniel became the chief of the Magi. And think about all that the Magi witnessed during the decades that Daniel was ruler over them? Well, first of all, and perhaps most importantly to them, is Daniel saved them from certain death because Daniel was able to interpret a dream that none of them could interpret. And not only did he do it once, but he came back and did it again. Not only did he do it two times, but as an old man, he was called back to interpret writing on the wall that none of them could interpret. In fact, When he was called back, he was called back. And that's where it's said that there's this man named Daniel who's chief of the Magi. He can do this. And so they witnessed him interpreting the king's dreams twice. They witnessed him predicting the fall of Babylon. They witnessed the fall of Babylon. But most importantly of all for what we're concerned with is that they certainly would have known and certainly would have been exposed to the prophecies that Daniel made concerning specifically the arrival of the Messiah in Jerusalem. Daniel gives us specific prophecies about this. And they would have known this. They would have been intimately familiar with this. Now think about this. 
Y'all still with me? Think about this. The Magi must have known from a thousand miles away. They must have known by studying the prophecies of Daniel that it was time for the Messiah to arrive. In fact, scholars date it. It's, it's one of the great one of the great evidences of the truthfulness of the Bible is that Daniel hit it right on the head. And they knew this was the time. Now, what was their trade? Remember? They were astronomers searching the skies, knowing the king was coming, searching the skies, and God, in his sovereignty, Raised up a star. Have you ever wondered, by the way, how, did, how is it that nobody else saw the star? Because we have it depicted. I think we even have a picture out there where the light of the star is shining like a, like a spotlight beam down on baby Jesus. And I think our art and our ideas about this incident lead us to wonder, how is it that this star over Bethlehem, nobody else saw it. I think the answer is pretty easy. How many of you chart the stars? I mean, how many regular people spend their time charting stars and tracking the movement of the stars? And how many of you would notice if you went out tonight and the sky was clear and you looked up, how many of you would go, hey, to your wife or whomever, hey, come here, look, there's a new star tonight. So God showed them in a way that they would see and led them right to the place where Jesus was. Somehow they knew that this star meant the fulfillment of this prophecy, so they load up their caravan. They go to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king. Now, here's where I want to give you my application. I said last three minutes, maybe a little bit more. This entire story captured me because I think it teaches us an important lesson about God and an important lesson about us. And here are the two lessons. You have to write them down. They're not in a PowerPoint this morning. Lesson number one, the lesson that teaches us about God is that God is always at work in the events of this world to bring Himself the ultimate glory. I think that this, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the, the, the book of Daniel to begin with, but I think this even more makes me appreciate it. So I don't know what God is doing in the world. I, I don't know. Does anybody in here know all that he's doing? How, how he's orchestrating the events of our world? I don't know, but I'm confident that he is. Daniel teaches us that. But also the arrival of the Magi, I think, teaches us something wonderful about the fact that he orchestrates things throughout history that we may not see in our time, but God's still working. He's still doing things. And some, some of, uh, of, of you and probably just people in general in our society, no matter where you land on issues or subjects or, or anything, are just, people are just so collectively discouraged right now. And many Christians are discouraged about what we see in the world. But I want you to be confident and know that, that God is working right now. In fact, think back on Daniel. When, when Daniel became chief of Mat, the Magi, God's people were being held captive in Babylon. 
So God is always doing something. 600 years before Jesus was born, God was arranging for the Magi to show up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Isn't that amazing? 600 years before it happened, he puts Daniel in the right place at the right time to become ruler over the right people so that they can be exposed to this teaching about the Messiah. So six centuries later, they can knock on the door and walk in to the presence of the Messiah. It's just an amazing thing. God is always at work. I don't know how it all works. Nobody knows how it all works. If you knew how it all worked, you would be God. Like, I don't know how he does these things, but he does. I know he's always working. I know he's always working for our good. Always. So the arrival, just the, the next time you, you read that or the next time you see our terribly wrong nativity uh, settings with these three kings standing with their gifts, I just say that kind of tongue in cheek. It's okay. The art, there's nothing wrong with the art. If you have a nativity, I, I love the nativity scene. But the next time you see that, instead of just seeing these three strange wise men, see the truth that God worked to get them there through centuries, centuries of activity that no one else probably noticed. God's at work. And the second thing that I think the second application about ourselves here is that if we seek God diligently, God will lead us to himself. If you seek God, by the way, uh, there are other places in the Bible. I'm not going to go to them right now, but there are other places in the Bible that we have the same truth about God being able to be found. Isaiah talks about it. Uh, Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. God is not far from us. If you seek Him diligently, He can be found. And so the Magi, they knew the King was coming. They knew that the King was coming, so they kept watch. They, they studied the prophets. I think it's interesting that God used what, what, uh, what they were into, even though it was the wrong thing. God used it to lead them to the right thing. I think that's really interesting. This is not an excuse for laziness spiritually, doing things you shouldn't do, but I'm just saying that God, if you're seeking God, I believe if with a pure heart you're seeking God, He will not hide from you. They studied, they watched diligently, and then one night, 2,000 years ago, God raises up a star, and they begin to follow and I think the application for us is simple because I hear people say all the time, I wish I was closer to God. I wish God would, would be more real to me. I wish that God would, would reveal himself to me more, more specifically than he ever has before. I'm just frustrated. I, I, I wish that I could know him better. And I think the question that we need to be asking is, are we really seeking Him? 
Are we seeking Him with our hearts? Or are we just wishing He would show up? Because if you seek Him, He'll be found. If you seek Him, He'll lead you to Himself. So how much effort, maybe just put it this way, how much effort are you putting in to knowing God? How much effort are you putting in to seeking Him? How much effort are you putting in to knowing the truth about Him? Or are you just waiting passively for God to do something miraculous? The, the wise men were not. I'm almost, almost done. Just, I think this is important distinction to make. That the wise men were not reclining in Babylon one night, you know, sipping tea, talking about the events of the day when suddenly a miraculous star appeared and they thought, oh, gather up the caravan. And let's go. They were seeking a sign. And God answered. Seek Him with all your heart. When we think of the Christmas story, we we think of Jesus, but there's also kings and there are fools. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to return to the same text next week. And there are these wise men. And the ones who are called wise were the ones who stopped at nothing to stand in the presence of Jesus. And I want you to think about that in your own life today. You bow your heads with me. And let me begin to close our, our service today. With those two points of application, I want us to think through them together this morning with your heads bowed. Just think through the truth that, that God is at work. You know, you may be praying for something specifically, for God to do something specifically. God does not sleep. He doesn't take days off. He's not on vacation. But you may never even see it in your lifetime. Just be confident that He's working. Be confident that He's orchestrating the events of this world and the events of your life for your good, for the good of His people, that He's doing things that we probably couldn't even fathom if we knew. It wouldn't make sense to us if we knew. But just be confident that He's at work. And let that confidence lead you closer to Him. And then also, what effort are you putting in to knowing Him? Like you personally, are you seeking Him out? Are you watching for Him? Are you waiting for Him? Are you longing for Him? We we individually need to seek Him out, each one of us. And He's not far from any of us. So seek Him with your whole heart. Anytime you see the nativity scene, remember those two things, the the, the, the craftsmanship of God in His creation, working all things together for good, and see those men, those pagan priests, standing in the presence of the God who spoke it all into existence. And remember that if you seek Him, you'll certainly be found.